This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Major U.S. corporations have benefited from an amazing tax credit for some time. The ability to write off research and development costs has been an annual credit rolled over each year by the government. But now Congress may want to make it a permanent credit. And this idea has many organizations up in arms. Joining us to take a look at why this may be happening is Nirupama Rao, who is an assistant professor of economics and public policy at NYU. And she has written an article on the subject. Go to publicpolicy.wharton.upenn.edu and search for R&D tax credit, and you should be able to find it rather easily. Nirupama, thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, how did we get to this point that that this uh, credit may very well become permanent? Um, you know, I don't know how likely it is to become permanent. Really? I okay. Every time someone runs for the presidency or for the Senate, um, you know, they make a list of things they like, right? Motherhood, apple pie, baseball, and <laughs> making the R&D tax credit permanent. Um, you know, politicians on the left, politicians on the right. Everybody loves the R&D tax credit. And obviously, as you, as you were alluding to, and, and it's been written up in a variety of, of areas, that this is a very political topic. It is. I mean, if everyone loves it when they're running, the question is, why is it never permanent once they're in office? And I think it just comes down to dollars and cents. Uh, to pass it and to make it permanent would increase the budgetary expense, and finding the pay-fors is hard. It's hard, especially when you can do it this other way. Right. Where you just have it temporarily in place, but with the sense that you'll likely extend it every time. You wrote a, a working paper uh, last year, which I had a chance to take a look at yesterday, about whether or not these tax credits, which started back in the early 80s, really actually stimulated spending. Did they? I mean, the overwhelming amount of evidence on this is that they are effective, that when you make R&D cheaper for corporations they seem to do more R&D. And this has been estimated in a host of ways. Um, my paper uses the changes in the policy, mm-hmm. so changes in the credit rate, changes in the way um, deductibility and the credit have interacted. Those policy changes provide us with basically exogenous variation in the discount firms receive on their research spending. And so using that variation, we can tease out what the effect of the subsidy is on the way corporations spend. And I find that, you know, if a 10% decrease in the price of R&D leads to more than 10% increase in R&D spending. Right. We're joined by Nirupama Rao from uh, New York University, an assistant professor of economics and public policy. I guess the, in one article uh, uh, noted that as of 2011, uh, the total tax credits that were brought in by companies was around was around $9.2 billion. Yeah, I mean, that's above, it must be around 11. I, I was going to say, it had to be well over 10 at this point. Oh, yeah. So, I think the 2012 number is $11.1 billion. So, and so we may be looking at, what, 12 to $14 billion now at this point? I would guess. You know, I think um, following the recession, corporate research spending rebounded. More spending means more tax credits. And so, yeah, we're clearly shelling out upwards of $10, $11, 12000000000 billion. So then if, going back from the 80s to where we are now, how much of a change has there realistically been in the effect of these tax credits on companies? So I think that's what's hard. Because in order to sort of get 
an unbiased estimate of the effect of the credit, we do need policy change. We need right. those changes in the statutory rates, the changes in which the deduction and the credit interact. So we have to use the 80s variation because after about 1991, we have not seen a lot of actual variation in the policy. So the estimates have to come from the 80s because mm-hmm. we need that policy <laughs> variation. And it's an open question how well they apply today. For example, in the 80s, um, the credit hadn't yet been allowed to expire. So corporations had a lot more faith that the credit would be in place, even if it's temporarily legislated, it would be extended. Right. Today, you know, I think it's a lot more uncertain for firms. In 1995, the credit was actually allowed to lapse and was never put into place retroactively. Firms just didn't receive tax credits for the research spending they did between June of 895 and um, June of 96. And obviously there there had to be a, a rather uh, uh, notable effect even in that one-year term uh, that they didn't receive the tax credits, that it, it was obviously brought back in a fairly quick fashion. I mean, I actually have not seen what happened to the data. I mean, yeah. firms may have gone ahead and spent assuming that the credit would be there, would be put into place retroactively. Um, and, you know, having had that experience, they might now be more nervous to spend with if the policy isn't certain. You know, I, that's actually, I think, the big open question when it comes to research on the credit is understanding how uncertainty affects corporate spending patterns. Right. We're joined by Nirupama Rao, who is a assistant professor of economics and public policy at uh, New York University. We're talking about the uh, R&D tax credit and whether or not it may become permanent or whether it will continue to be a, an annual uh, rollover. Uh, you said in uh, the article that was up on the uh, public policy site uh, that I guess that or you had had um, contact with the Internal Revenue Service in terms of receiving data from them. What, yeah. what, what was that and how did that help you uh, come to your, to, to your conclusions? So, I mean, the R&D tax credit is a very complicated um, policy where a firm only earns credits on its marginal spending. And the marginal spending is defined as spending above your base, where your base is based on your firm's historical R&D spending. So having an accurate measure of your prior spending relative to your current spending is critical to correctly measuring the marginal subsidy for research spending. And people have generally uh, relied on public data from CompuStat, which comes from 10K uh, filings by firms, to sort of assess the R&D tax credit. But CompuStat is based on 10Ks, and thus the R&D measure you're getting is based on accounting measures mm-hmm. rather than tax measures. And the accounting measure is different. It includes, for example, R&D conducted in foreign countries. It also includes research spending that might not be quite experimental enough or basic research enough to qualify for the tax credit. And so, you know, studies that have used the public data have done the best they can, but there was I had, a, I had a hunch that they were mismeasuring the mm. marginal subsidy. And so what I did is I um, got in touch with the Treasury, and it was a process, but I was able to actually um, visit the Treasury um, for, for a few weeks and work directly with the IRS data, so the data that comes from the tax returns of the corporations, which gives you that accurate measure of the subsidy right. and accurate measure of their qualified research spending. One of the interesting statistics you have uh, in uh, your work is from the GAO, from the General Accounting Office, that calculated that the the savings 
due to the tax credit, basically, you know, the after-tax price, uh, was anywhere from what about six and a half to seven and a half percent. When and, and when we're talking about the amount of money uh, that we are in this, that's a lot of money that they, that these companies are saving. So I mean, they're saving between six to seven percent. So they're paying ninety-three percent or so of the cost. Right. So that's you know a seven percent discount. Is, is not is not trivial. And what my research shows and what research by other people has shown is that that's enough of a discount to get them to spend a bit more. Right. That we do get some bang for our bucks when we are dishing out these tax credits. We're joined by Nirupama Rao uh, from New York University, uh, from the Wagner School of Public Service there. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. As for what we have in place right now, uh, from looking at the reading from the article that you wrote, there are four components really to the credits at this point? Yeah. So this is, I think, the one of the big policy questions going forward is, you know, I think we can put aside the energy and the university tax credits for now because they apply to just a few firms and they're kind of small. They're small potatoes. I think the two major components are the traditional credit, which has this pattern where your base that you must spend more than is actually a complicated formula. It goes back to the 1980s. So a firm has to calculate its ratio of total R&D spending divided by total sales between 1984 and 1988. So we're talking about 30 years ago at this point. Right. So that ratio from the 80s is then multiplied by your last four years of sales. Mm-hmm. To give a sense of what the firm's basic amount of research spending is, and thus to only reward the firm for research spending above and beyond that sort of normal amount. So that's the traditional credit. It's complicated. It has this funny thing where you have to have data going back 30 years. If you didn't exist 30 years ago or you don't have data from some of those years, you instead use a 3% base amount. So you multiply your more recent sales by 3%, and that's your research base. That's the traditional credit. It's data-intensive. It's really basing a firm's normal level of spending on how it spent on research 30 years ago. Right. There's the second part of the R&D tax credit, what we kind of collectively call the R&D tax credit. And that's the alternative simplified credit. And what that does is it looks at your last three years of spending on, on research and development, and that is your, um, your base. And it draws on just more recent years, and that has the advantage of being less data intensive and being more representative of the firm's research spending more recently. It has the disadvantage of having a dynamic disincentive for mm-hmm. research spending because every dollar you spend today becomes part of your base for the next three years. Sure. And so that undermines the credit. The alternative simplified credit is very popular. Um, the traditional credit sounds complicated. It's a pain in the neck. It's sort of, at this point, it has the easy knock that it's based on research spending 30 years ago. But I think the enthusiasm for the simplified credit needs to be muted. I think that's so, we, we used to have a regime like that prior to 1990. The traditional credit had that moving base. And, you know, work by me and work by, and um, studies by the GAO have shown that when you have that moving average base, a lot of firms are actually stuck mm-hmm. with negative marginal credit rates where they're not spending enough today to get a credit, but every dollar they spend today is building into base in the future. Sure. And thus, redu- and thus creating a negative incentive to spend. And so if we think, you know, based on work by me and work by a number of other researchers, 
that the R&D tax credit, that subsidies for research spending are effective in increasing research spending. We want to be careful about switching to a regime that has negative credit rates for some firms and leaves a lot of firms with very, very low credit rates. Right. I think that's the danger, is that the simplified credits are much more attractive when you describe the rules, but they leave a lot of firms out in the cold with negative rates, with really low rates, and we're really weakening the incentives for R&D. Right. Is the traditional credit um, the holy grail? Absolutely not. I mean, having a, a base that's based on 30 years ago is just silly. Right. That's before the internet, <laughs> it's before pharmaceutical innovations. It's, it's, it's just so long ago. It, it's, I, all, it's next to impossible to try and really gauge it accurately when you're talking about something that's 30, 35 years ago. Absolutely. And so I think that Congress has to figure out what they want to do with the credit. If they think it's a useful thing for the economy, that the research spending that corporations are doing because of the subsidy is actually really good for the U.S. economy, then maybe it makes sense to just have a flat credit. Yeah. You get a credit of 4% of everything you spend on research. Okay. Well, it's simple. It doesn't rely on data from 30 years ago, and it doesn't have that moving average base that leads to low and negative credit rates for many firms. Now, now the problem, I guess, that, that uh, some organizations see with uh, the, the types of benefits that these companies are getting uh, from this R&D tax credit are, are the types of innovations that they are claiming under this, under this tax credit, not exactly what you would call the normal things that you would expect to be under research and development. They've kind of expanded the base, and they're kind of walking that edge a little bit, aren't they? Well, I mean, there's actually a lot of interplay between the IRS and the firm as to what qualifies as, as, um, as, sub, as, sub, as subsidized spending. Yeah. And so what, what's interesting is this is a policy that is vague as to what is researchy enough and experimental enough to qualify. And it's sort of decided on a case-by-case basis. For example, internal software developed for internal use is not subsidized by the R&D tax credit. So banks that develop software systems to manage their customers, to manage um, data flows, that doesn't qualify for the credit. Um, Particular kinds of drug development, if they're too far along the product development chain where it's not experimental enough, it won't qualify. So I would say it's actually not so much that firms are sneaking in all kinds of spending because there's so much oversight by the IRS, which is, of course, costly for both the firm and the IRS. Right. But there is a lot of sort of um, reviewing of what is going in. But it's also true that there is research spending that firms undertake that doesn't qualify. And thus, when we decide what qualifies, the IRS, I mean, not the legislation, but the IRS regulations that govern how the credit is actually put into practice, that's actually... Some of my work, you know, has shown that there is a lot more movement, a lot more increase in qualified spending relative to general R&D spending. So I think something else that, you know, policymakers need to think about is that when we send out those regs, when we disallow certain kinds of spending and allow certain kinds of spending to get the credit, we're also steering firms towards certain research activities. And that margin, that regulation margin, is an important dimension on which we are changing firm behavior. So... I don't think it's that firms are getting credits for things we don't find worthy, but we ha- we are the ones drawing that line, you know, and that's a administration role. It's yeah. a IRS role, and I think it's I think it's an important margin of the policy. Is the IRS, if we are able to kind of 
trim down what what really qualifies as R and D. And then, you know, you gave the example of the pharmaceutical industry. Maybe you know anything that is a stage one or stage one or stage two drug in development are, are the only pieces that that qualify for it. So my question is: is the IRS, which we have talked about on this show, is grossly undermanned at this point? Are they able to handle this, or is this really something that? they may need an assistance on to try and manage this. I mean, I think I think it was in 2007 that credit use was one of these things flat to look at sort of misuse um, and compliance issues. Compliance yep. issues is a better way to describe it, that to make sure that credits that are being claimed are, are being accurately claimed. Uh, it was flagged in 2007 as a tier one compliance issue. But what I think is also true is that while there might be some firms, you know, overclaiming to some degree, I think there's a lot of firms not claiming it as much as they could. Hmm. They don't think their work is, is necessarily um, eligible. I think that's most likely to be the smaller firms, the firms that have less sophisticated tax departments. You know, if you think of a firm like, like Pfizer or, um, or Dow Chemical, they have massive tax sure, departments that yeah. really can make the best use of the code. Well, I think a smaller firm might be less likely to, to know how how much it could qualify for well it and, might not be applying and, and maybe even be somewhat concerned of putting in for a credit that maybe the they believe that the irs might come back at them and then they have to deal with a whole whole uh, other nest of problems absolutely you know if, if the irs is flagging it as a tier one compliance issue maybe the smaller firm is more hesitant to apply how much I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish up. Because they're afraid of the audit, um, or they're they're just don't they're they're nervous about the process. When you're talking about major corporations that are using this, uh, how much does this also affect, as you said, the 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 small guy, the startup, uh, the ones that may have these these great ideas that they would like to push forward, and you're going against corporations, which are obviously getting massive benefits from this this tax credit. Uh, The smaller guy. They may get a benefit, but obviously not as much as the big guy. Well, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that the big corporations are doing most of the research spending. Sure. They do most of the spending, and they you know, thus qualify for the lion's share of credits, right? They, you know, they do 80 90% of the spending. They're getting about that much of the credit. I think for the small guy, um, so I did, when I did my analysis, divide up the sample and look at how small firms differ from larger firms. And what's interesting is that the long-run effect on their spending is about the same. Interestingly, the small firms, their short-run effect is bigger. That means that they're reacting more quickly than the larger firms. So the total effect is similar. Whether that's because it's easier for them to increase spending because they're smaller or that they have some actual sort of financing issue where the credit is helping them support their research directly, Mm -hmm. dollar for dollar, it's interesting. There is this this higher short-run response. Um, but, you know, because of the way in which sort of the simplified credit, for example, or even the traditional credit, the bases really work is that it's going to reward firms that have rising research spending, i.e. you're spending more and more each year. And also, these are not refundable tax credits. So if you don't owe taxes in a year because you're a startup and you're small and you're not yet profitable, you can book the tax credit. You can have it on your books, maybe for future use. Yeah. You can carry it forward, but you're not going to make use of it this year. Maybe not even next year if you're not taxable. So when it comes to small firms, I think the issue is that they're, they might be earning credits if they're actually applying for credits that they um, are eligible for. They could be earning them, but not actually able to use them. And I think that is an issue that um, if Congress decides to make this credit permanent, that might be 
it, it's something to worry about as well, that small firms just aren't actually able to use them very quickly. But as you said at the top of our conversation here, your thought is that this may not very well be pushed through as a permanent element. I mean, so I started this project back when I was in graduate school, so that must have been oh, 2009, 2010, something like that. Um, and my sense of reading about this topic and even my sort of watching of it over the last few years has been that it's always discussed as, you know, let's make it permanent. Let's support American innovation. And it's a very nice thing to say. But then when it comes down to it, you know, it's not – I don't think it's that people are disingenuous. I think that you get into office and you realize there are a lot of budget priorities. And this is one that actually works out okay this way. Yeah. So you do it temporarily and then you extend it. And it doesn't require the pay force that it would if it was made permanent. And so if you have other priorities as well that need the budgetary room, this one just, it's not that it's being repealed or not extended typically. It's that you're choosing to keep it temporary because you might have other priorities. There are more cynical observers of the R&D tax credit um, and its temporary nature that think that part of the reason why it's temporary is that imagine you are a um, office holder, you're a member of Congress, and you know you know the R&D tax credit has only been legislated for two or three years. Somewhere, you know, two and a half years from now, you're when you're thinking of running for re-election and you need, and you need to, to finance that re-election campaign, the firms that benefit from the R&D tax credit will be particularly interested in your re-election. Sure, they, of course they would. Absolutely. And well, so I think a more cynical observer looks at this as it's a temporary tax credit that has campaign cash returns every time it comes up for renewal. And that, that's one of the reasons legislators might favor it being temporary. Yeah. The question is, though, I guess, and the timing of this coming up now, uh, and obviously it's been a, a, a seemingly a year-by-year process, correct? Um, I, it's typically put in, I mean, it used to be back in the 80s, yeah. um, put in for four, five, six years at a time. Okay. Lately, it's because it's been allowed to actually lapse and then put in retroactively, like in 2014, the credit was put into place in December of 2014 for 2014. Right. They just do it for a year at a time because it's retroactive. And that's become the pattern lately because it's actually being allowed to lapse more frequently. How tough would it be to, to put new standards in place to really uh, get a, a, a set pattern of, of what is a credit and what isn't a credit? Uh, and then what kind of spending qualifies and what doesn't? Yeah, exactly. I think the Treasury's done a better job lately of being much more clear, of laying out strict guidelines as to what's going to qualify and not. But at the end of the day, you know, I think you generally, I mean, the U.S. has had a history of, you know, I think of it as the wildflower method. You know, sprinkle the seeds and let a thousand flowers bloom. Mm -hmm. Let industry choose what they're doing to the largest degree possible. Because you don't want to be picking winners and losers. You know, you don't want to be saying um, we're going to sponsor drug development of this kind and not that kind because we don't know as the government as much about the process of research and development in that industry as, as firms in the industry. So I think in terms of actually trying to delineate this and not that, we're doing a pretty good job. I think the question we have to be much more careful about is when we are sending out those regs and saying this spending qualifies, qualifies and that spending does not, some of my research in, with smaller samples um, suggests that that's actually an important dimension on which we're affecting behavior. That right. when we define what qualifies, we get more of exactly that. So we need to think hard about what should qualify. And, you know, we might want to be careful. We don't want to be picking winners too strictly. Yeah. But we also want to get a sense that 
we're accomplishing the goal. Because why do we subsidize R&D? Why do we do this? You know, that's, it's a question. And it's because we think that when a firm engages in early research, there are returns to that work, to that spending, that the firm is not fully able to capture. Even in a country like ours with strong IP protections, sure. that there are spillovers. And I mean, that's part of why we think there are these agglomerations, yeah. that when Tesla innovates, some of that knowledge seeps out to battery makers in the surrounding area, to other electric car designers in the area, and that there's some spillover, some, some loss of some of that innovative know-how. And so we subsidize it because we think that there are these spillovers. If we knew what types of research had more spillovers, right. we'd want to define the regs so that that's what's subsidized. I think the I think a real issue is is that we're pretty uncertain. We you know we're uncertain as to what has the highest spillovers. Yep. We actually don't fully understand how big the spillovers are. That's an area that needs more work by smart and talented people out there um, to think about what the spillovers, how big they are, how best can we measure them, yep. and to get a sense of it. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.